Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is 4 p.m. in the afternoon in California on Thursday, August the 25th. We're getting towards the end of the week, end of the month, end of the day. Burnout time. It's the kind of time late on a Thursday afternoon when many of us feel totally exhausted, wiped out. We feel we need a week, a month, a year, a lifetime to recover from all this burnout. Burnout or corporate burnout is in the news excessively, almost uh, so much of it that it it's a way of burning out ourselves. Harvard Business Review always wanting to be the best, has listed three types of burnout, um, as if uh, they know more about burnout than we do at Harvard. Um, New York Times, always trying to be miserable, uh, has a piece uh, a couple of days ago about how we can tell if we're depressed or burnt out, maybe both. Um, It's not just in the United States. China's youth, according to NPR, uh, has massive burnout all over the world. There's burnout. There's quiet quitting, whatever that means, and something we might discuss today on a late Thursday afternoon in in late August. Quiet quitting is the latest workplace trend, um, and it happens apparently on TikTok of all places. My expert today on the show and my author is Mia Betop Russell. She is the co-author of Fired Up, a guide to transforming your team from burnout to engagement. So she's just the kind of person we need to talk to on a late Thursday afternoon in August. Uh, She teaches at Johns Hopkins in the engineering school. Mia, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. How are you? Very, very well, Mia. You, we, we were talking before about whether or not it's hot, maybe hot or not. It's certainly not hot in San Francisco, but it's hot in the offices, isn't it, Mia? What do you make of this obsession we seem to have, particularly post-COVID with burnout? Is it just some sort of um, neurosis we have or is it real? Is it really affecting the economy? I think um, it's definitely real. Uh, and we see its effect in the economy. I think over the summer, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, estimates of over 400,000 people left the workforce. So uh, burnout or workplace stress, or you know, as you already uh, alluded to, we, we'll likely talk about quiet quitting. Um, these workplace trends, phenomena are affecting um, people every day. So this is something that's really yeah, I was reading your book. It wiped me out just by reading some of your stats. 60% of employees report an increase in work-related pressure over the last five years. 56% of employees experienced increased job demands. 66% of employees feel overextended by their workplace. Is this ultimately a problem with 21st century capitalist corporations? Mia, people are just working too hard. There's no profit there. And people are being driven excessively? Well, I think it definitely is a symptom of our complex, fast-paced, demanding work environments. Um, 
perhaps we'll just call that a, a consequence of this 21st uh, century work environment. I think that's, uh, you You aptly stated that. What are you going to do about it? I was just, while I was preparing for this, I went to LinkedIn and I got affronted with some message about the future of work. He said, work is going to happen more and more at the speed of light. We are converging technology, connectivity, and social capital to keep our organization charged as the environment changes. These mm-hmm. are the, This is the kind of stuff you read on LinkedIn all the time. Mm-hmm. People seem to be boasting almost about it. It's terrifying, isn't it, Mia? I mean, is this... Is the pace, the acceleration picking up more and more? Will it ever slow down? It doesn't appear to be slowing down, but perhaps uh, this can be, you know, a a bottom-up approach. Employees are definitely sending a message. Um, Employees, whether we want to call it the great resignation, great reshuffling, great reordering, great attrition, whatever these kind of uh, uh, captions we want to put on this movement, Employees are clearly reconciling um, with themselves uh, how they want to work. And I think it's, uh, you know, it is a, a, um, they likely are thinking about this given the past two years. During uh, the pandemic, especially in the beginning, people started to rethink priorities. And uh, post, let's say post lockdown, since it isn't really post COVID yet, you know, employees are are experiencing greater, greater levels of stress and burnout. And they're trying to figure out what to do as many of them are returning to the office. I I can only imagine that uh, these, uh, uh, these challenges that employees are facing are, are being, um, you know, are a challenge in a work environment and probably uh, affecting work culture. You, you In your book, Mia, the, as I said, you co-authored, um, you quote the great man Frederick Douglass, one of the greatest figures in American history, uh, the 19th century abolitionist, uh, African-American abolitionist. Frederick Douglass wrote, people might not get all they work for in this world, but they certainly must work for all they get. Uh, Douglas, as always, is realistic. The, the, the choice, Mia, we don't have a choice. I mean, that's what Douglas is really saying. It's, it's all very well complaining about your work. It's all very well complaining about burnout and exploitation and mm-hmm. blah, 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 whether or not you're depressed or burnt out, as the New York Times asked. But the vast majority of us, Mia, cannot afford to give up work, can we? No, I think uh, this discussion uh, about um, not working, you know, whether or not to work is really a conversation of privilege. Most Mm. people um, must work and most people may not Um, You know, I challenge this idea, but I think it's the reality that uh, many people that must work um, are probably not preoccupied with this idea of whether or not um, this is a a work environment that fosters engagement or well-being. Um, But, you know, my co-author and I believe that if leaders and organizations did prioritize well-being, uh, it, it has a, you know, a ripple exponential benefit. So I think it's about uh, shifting the responsibility for this. I don't believe that it sits or rests um, at the heels of employees. I think that leaders and organizations have a lot of control and that control, uh, with that control also becomes comes some responsibility. 
And let's remember that your co-author, who unfortunately isn't with us, is Gervin Liggins, who I think teaches yeah. with you at Johns Hopkins. One of the other interesting charts I noted in your book, um, Mia, are the industries with the highest employee burnout rates. The highest is the hotel, food services, and hospitality industry, and then manufacturing. Uh, the bottom is tech, which is my business in Silicon Valley, where the people are better paid. Is this a class thing when it comes to burnout? Uh, the poorer you are, perhaps the darker skinned you are, are you more likely to experience burnout? I wouldn't say that. I think what the research shows is that burn no one is immune from burnout. Um, in fact, I don't know, I think the estimate is anywhere between 80 and 115,000 hours that um, an average American will work over their lifetime. So with when we work that much, it is uh, there's an increased likelihood that everyone at some time or another will experience burnout. Um, I think what that that chart shows is um, and other research associated with it is that regardless of industry and regardless of country, burnout is a global phenomenon. We did, we've done a couple of interesting shows about meaning and work. Uh, did one with Wendy Smith, an author, another business school author. She talks about the need for corporations to focus both on profit and the resp responsibility. Also did an interview with another sociologist who's, who interviewed a number of working people and discovered that happiness at work, it wasn't a, a burnout study, but happiness at work didn't reflect one's pay or even one's success, but the, the meaning, um, and particularly the relationships one had with others. Is, is that one of the things that you found in your research, that meaning is key and that that might be the most effective antidote to burnout? Yeah, so when I think of meaning, I think of meaning, um, you know, uh, meaningful work, um, but also this idea of, you know, finding your purpose or fulfilling your purpose at work. I definitely think both of those are drivers. Um, and, um, you know, we there's also lots of literature around hope and happiness at work. And that I think there is a interesting um, intersection with some of these constructs. Some, um, honestly, are still uh, are still in an infancy stage. Um, but having purpose, you know, I think lots of research has shown purpose, autonomy, right? Um, some of these, um, um, I guess, um, being able to work in an environment where this is fostered uh, boosts well-being exponentially. So what you're saying then, Mia, is perhaps the responsibility of corporate leaders, of managers, of directors, is not so much to spoil people, to pat them on the back, but to add perhaps a, a kind of moral structure to work or to the community around work, to make sure that people aren't isolated, that they're connected both with each other and with their bosses. Is that perhaps one one way to trans the, the subtitle of your book is transforming your team from burnout to engagement is engagement about as you say meaning i think that in uh, meaning is a part of engagement um as we you know um as we think broadly about engagement when we talk about engagement and i, I want to answer this two different ways but when we talk about engagement we're specifically talking about 
the vigor that an employee has about work, um, absorption into their work and the dedication. So uh, we would think, I would imagine that we could equate meaning to, uh, it could be closely related to dedication if I um, uh, feel that um, I am contributing to something bigger than myself and I'm making a um, positive difference um, at work, I can imagine how that could be correlated with the feelings of dedication, right? And the more that you do that, the harder it will be for you to detach from work, right? That's that absorption. Um, and of course, I would that also would give you the energy or the vigor to be excited and keep going in that work. So I think that is that makes perfect sense. And uh, I think when we we use these words somewhat interchangeably, but we're really talking about this positive affect that leads to positive organizational outcomes. I think at the core of it, that's what we're all talking about. You also mentioned this, this social support and that uh, leaders and organizations don't need to you know, pacify employees, but create a uh, positive environment. Um, a lot we talk a lot about uh, a positive, thriving, flourishing work environment. You know, we character characterize those as an ideal work environment uh, where there's trust and fairness and respect. I think, in addition to those social, I mean, as we think about the social relationships, we're also thinking about the relationships that employees have with their manager. Uh, often, we find that employees quit their manager, not really the job. And so uh, a, a good That's leader... That's really interesting. Maybe talk a little bit more about that, the idea of quitting a manager rather than a job. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, a good leader is, or, or the inverse, right, is a, a significant factor in turnover um, and things like organizational commitment or job satisfaction. And so... I think it's really about high quality relationships that leaders and managers have with their employees that can put some of this at bay. Um, and so the other side of this is, I believe that all of these, um, this, this, uh, you know, this uh, quiet quitting or this great resignation, when we think about all of this movement in the workplace, if a, a good leader can change this, right, can address these issues, the conditions in the work environment to eliminate or at least mitigate uh, the, the great exodus. A lot of the pieces on quiet quitting, it's become very fashionable to write about it and what you call the great exodus focuses on young people, particularly post-COVID. We did a show um, earlier in this week with the NPR education correspondent Anya, Anya uh, Kamenetz. She has a new book out, The Stolen Year, about the catastrophic cost of the pandemic to kids and, and younger people. In your research, uh, Mia, are you finding that burnout is affecting younger people more, people who are new to the workforce, or is it affecting people equally across generations, old middle-aged and young alike? So our research hasn't specifically looked at generational differences. Um, so, so I can't say that that's what our research has found, but I know that all of the research that I've been reading speaks to that. 
speaks to millennials. Um, you know, maybe I read a little bit about Gen Z entering the workforce. And I wonder, I have lots of questions about it. I wonder if um, in the same way that you mentioned the NPR um, article about the stolen year, I think, uh, the, the I, you know, there is truly like this catastrophic cost on young people. I know uh, what adults feel, youth feel even more significantly. And so I can't imagine starting your career and um, having this, having to try to figure all of this out. Um, and, you know, maybe you're in a new town or you're, you know, I can only imagine what that, how that felt and played out for young employees or younger employees and that it had to be a challenge. Mia, you teach at Johns Hopkins, so you deal with young people on a daily basis. Are we repairing young people well enough for the workforce? We just did a, a show about earlier today about how badly um, marketed pricing and universities are and that college students, when they're entering, are never really told the truth about pricing or the opportunities for wages. Are we doing the same for kids at college? They're promised everything. They're promised meaning at work. They're promised excitement. They're told not to compromise, especially if they go to uh, uh, fancy schools like uh, Johns Hopkins. But the reality, you and I both know this, the reality of the workplace, especially for jobs fresh out of college, pretty brutal. They tend to be exploited. They tend to have to work too hard. They're not very well paid. So perhaps should we be, should we be more honest about kids, which may... Um, which may help confronting the burnout that many of them are experiencing with their first or second jobs? So I think, um, I guess in my experience with my students, I found that um, they are idealistic, but pragmatic. So, and many of them have seen parents that have worked a certain way they may think they don't want to do it. You know, they may think they don't want, I've heard comments like, I'm not going to have my, you know, work phone and computer with me on holidays with my family. Right. But so I think they've seen some of this, uh, the effects of this complex and demanding workplace, but they also want to earn a, uh, you know, they have uh, high aspirations. And so I, I think this is something they're trying to navigate. So I see this um, pragmatism that I think is healthy, um, but I also am inspired by their ideals and what they think is right. Um, and perhaps with a you know a, gen a big enough generation, which they are about you know should be about the same size as the baby boomers. Uh, we can have some shifts in organizations and you know um, expectations. Uh, I am I am hopeful uh, when I uh, speak to my students about the future and um, in all regards, especially with work. You seem a particularly optimistic person and, and very generous about your students. I've heard a lot of very different takes on this generation, particularly from people who work in corporations. They say that some of the people now coming into the workplace, they're too demanding. They think that they can work flexible hours. They don't want to be told what to do. 
they feel that they can, they almost have the right to take two or three weeks break, that burnout is some sort of emotional crisis. Are there areas, Mia, where you think this young generation needs to toughen up? Um, I don't know. I think that they are much more expressive than at least as a Gen Xer, I think I would have ever been comfortable with being expressive at work. You know, um, I think their acceptance of, um, you know, uh, cre- um, ensuring that they have a, um, a good mental health is important or critical. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm challenged by this. I'm sure there are some ways in which they need to toughen up because this was also that, uh, you know, trophy generation. They just got a pat on the back just for participating. So in many ways, I'm sure they need to toughen up. But um, expectations about work, I'm not sure are all bad. Uh, I think there is a benefit to, um, I, th- I think with, a, if, if these ideals uh, spread throughout this, you know, this uh, next generation entering the workforce, it can only help um, leaders and organizations change structures and expectations and culture. I think it's important that organizations care about employees' well-being. And we know that when they do care about employees' well-being, it also improves productivity and performance and also their bottom line, similar to the um, the other author you were talking about that uh, was just on talking about profits and social responsibility. Yeah, that's Wendy Smith, another yeah, business Wendy school Smith, professor. Yes. Yeah. So I think, that, you know, perhaps both can be true. The They may need to toughen up, but I also think that there is a spirit in them that can help advance change in meaningful ways that obviously um, people across the board are not satisfied with. In your book, Mia, you want to, in part one, um, actually chapter two, you ask why we work. And yeah. we've talked about this a little bit. We had a radical journalist, left-wing journalist on the show last year, very articulate one, Sarah Jaffe. Um, she has a book out, Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. She suggests that we should just treat jobs, perhaps as Douglas implied, as a way of feeding ourselves, paying our rent, um, feeding and clothing our our children, and not expecting too much from work. How would you respond to uh, a a journalist like Jaffe about the idea that work simply won't love you back? You You might love your work, but it won't love you. Yeah, I actually um, <laughs> just ordered that book. Um, oh, so good. I'm, yeah, I'm interested in um, in this idea, right? Um, I, I hear this a lot, um, but I think what the research bears out, or not I think, what the research bears out is that when employees do find meaning um, at work, they are happier. And... Um, it can be, I'm sure that, um, you know, I think the quiet quitting is all about 
doing your job, not going above and beyond, treating work as a, uh, it's a transactional relationship. Uh, because we spend probably at least, a, but no, more than a third of our lives working, I am uh, like found fundamentally challenged with this idea that I should treat that as some transactional um, exercise when I'm giving so much of my time to it. Um, I'd prefer to enjoy what I'm doing since I'm going to be doing it anyway. And I think that there. Um, well, you have a pretty I cool believe, job. Though. I mean, you teach at Johns Hopkins. Not everyone can teach in the engineering school at Johns Hopkins. Well, that's true, but this isn't the only career I've had. I've, I mean, or the only organization I've worked. I've been a corporate, nonprofit, other. Have you ever had a job you hated? Um, yeah, I have. And, and what was that? I, I don't say again. What was it? I think um, it was more so. Um, I had an administrative role, um, and I don't know if it was. I want to think about it. Did I hate it? I might have. I hated some of the aspects of the work and I didn't feel fulfilled. Um, and it prompted me to think about, um, you know, like anything when we are uncomfortable, it makes us think about uh, it often makes us think about what can we do? Where do we really want to be? What would we like to see? What do we want to do? So it prompted me to change. Um, and even when I have, I've had, um, you know, other roles where it, it was, it was more about not having opportunities for growth. Perhaps it wasn't just, I hated it, but I didn't see myself there long-term. I still think that when I show up, um, I want to, since I'm investing so much time, I'd like to also um, enjoy it. You hinted earlier, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, that this idea of the work-life balance, which we, we've done a number of shows on it. We did one with the writer Annie Auerbach, who has a book out, Flex, Reinventing Work for a Smarter, Happier Life. That this idea of the work-life balance is itself a manifestation of a privileged class or workforce is that what you were saying should should we respect the idea of a work-life balance or simply focus on the work side being good so that we don't have to obsess over the work-life balance well i think what i was alluding to earlier is that um some and uh, some must work right and uh, we saw during the pandemic that a lot of people of color um, were unable to work from home, right? Those were, uh, this was why we also saw greater incidences of, of uh, uh, the virus uh, affecting various communities, primarily black community and uh, Latino community. Um, I think uh, working from, you know, work-life balance and work-life integration, um, I, I think, that uh, there is some way, you know, depending on the type of role that you have, the work will come home, right? If work comes home, I think it is important 
to try to find ways to better balance or integrate it so that you aren't, um, you know, experiencing burnout or this chronic exhaustion that leads to burnout. I think there's a reality that some jobs and, you know, specific roles, positions do not allow you the flexibility that, um, you know, many people do get to enjoy. Now, it's interesting that the book is called Flex. So yeah. flexibility is a word that goes both ways too, excusing the pun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's yeah, think- end, uh, Mia, on a positive note, because okay. your book is, is a positive book. You have what you call, in, in terms of fixing things, of making things better, you have you seem to have a rule of three A's, assess, acknowledge, and act. Perhaps very briefly, you might go through those as a, as a guide to transforming your team of making yeah. life for your workers better, which is better for them, better for you, and of course, better for your company. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So um, we have a framework that is uh, really designed of if we uh, think about a socio-ecological model, right? Three levels of the organization: personal, uh, the job, and then organization. Um, and uh, so we go from a micro to a macro level, and um, we suggest that if leaders want to really transform the work environment, the first thing that they must do is assess the factors and the conditions within the environment that may be fostering burnout. Um, mitigating burnout and and at the same time fostering and or mitigating engagement. And so this is one reason we believe that leaders and organizations have a responsibility uh, to address burnout because at an organizational and job level, the employee has no control over over many aspects of what is happening. Um, After assessing uh, the work environment, then we think it's important to acknowledge uh, many aspects uh, within the work environment. For example, um, your span of control. Leaders need to understand what they uh, can um, individually and immediately influence versus what they may need to get buy-in for. So we think about indirect and direct span of control. We also think about current realities. How are things like COVID or the return to the office or, um, you know, um, complaints of toxic leadership? How are these things influencing uh, perceptions of your team, your uh, employees within the organization? And then we also focus on the characteristics or job characteristics. Um, And these are job resources, things like the ability, you know, autonomy, flexibility, uh, these may not mean working from home, but it may mean that you can dis, you know, do the work in the way that you see fit, right? Giving you as an employee um, more say in how the job gets done. Uh, we also look at uh, job demands. Uh, we look, we call these challenging versus hindrance. So some job demands, uh, for example, in, example, a stretch assignment or something that really will push the employee in a special project. Those are challenging job demands um, versus the hindrance demands, these things that really weigh on employees. Um, Long hours, required overtime, things of that such. And then also organizational support. So what are some of the resources or the support systems in the organization that 
um, exist, right? So after you understand what all of these are, how do we take what is happening in the organization with what you know, how do we take those together and create an action plan? So that third step is all about uh, bringing it together and designing strategies that speak to any of these conditions that exist within your control. Um, and also there are some suggestions on how do you also do things that may be longer term, right? How do you buy, get buy-in for certain things or how do you understand things that may be widespread over the organization and make a case for it? So that is the structure and framework that we offer um, in this, that last section of the book. Well, it's good stuff on a late Thursday afternoon. It's getting me fired up. Mia, thank you. A guide to transforming your team from burnout to engagement. You wrote it with uh, your colleague, Gervin Liggins. Congratulations on the new book. It's an important book uh, for those of us um, who have teams and need to make sure that they're working hard and happily. Hopefully, you will save us from quiet quitting. Mia, what else are you reading these days? I hope you're not just reading uh, corporate stuff. Do you read novels? Well, um, I, I, re I don't read a lot of novels, but I have read, um, I also have uh, taught another course about uh, the racial wealth gap. And so I've read, recently read Fixing the Racial Wealth Gap by Rodney Brooks. Oh, interesting. Uh, as, as well as The Some of Us by Heather McGee. Yeah, Heather McGee was on, Heather was on the show. She's very, very good. And it's an excellent book. Um, and I actually am, have been reading The Power of Regret by Dan Pink. So that is also a, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about all kinds of things, especially as we think about the past two years, mm. right? And how do we use our past to boost us forward? Yeah, Dan Pink was one of the first people on this show, and he's an important writer. Mm -hmm. 